Heavenly Father, you are a good provider. You, are, you know our needs before we even ask. And Lord, I know that I can come to you confidently knowing that you desire to speak this morning. You desire to work in our lives. To change us. To help us lay down the things that so easily ensnare us as we run this race. Lord, help us to be a a better witness to our family, to our loved ones, to our uh, co-workers, to our fellow students, to our friends. Lord, let that be the question on our minds. How are we to live today? Teach us to what teach us about what we should set our minds on. Help us to win that battle of the mind. We want to take our thoughts into captivity and not let our thought life rule over us, but we want your spirit to rule over us. So Holy Spirit, work this morning through your word. We love you and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We are closing out the book of Philippians this morning. We've really been studying how to have joy in the Lord. And one of the questions that I've had to ask myself as we've gone through this letter uh, is, do I enjoy my walk with Jesus? Am I enjoying my relationship with Jesus Christ? And I'd pose that question question to you as well. Are you enjoying fellowship with God? Scripture tells us that the joy of the Lord is our strength. So if we find ourselves weak this morning, there may be a a lack in this area of joy. And so we've been really digging into what joy is how important it is to have the source of our joy centered on Christ alone. Because He is the only one that does not fail us. In Him, our hope is secure. If we place our hope in any other thing, we will be disappointed. But if we place our hope in Jesus, our joy is made sure. Last week, we looked at finding joy in the pursuit and how Paul's singular aim was to know Christ and Him crucified. He knew if he pursued that, everything else would follow. And so we learned about uh, just this, this reality that effort is not a bad thing. In our hyper-grace society, effort sometimes sounds like a, a curse word. Trying to Putting forth uh, directed effort is not a bad thing. It's really about what we are striving for. What are we working towards? Paul says, I make every effort to take hold of Jesus. He says, my pursuit, my chief aim, why I run the race, it's him. He is my prize. When we, play, when we place our uh, efforts and uh, resources and strength in trying to earn God's approval, that's a recipe for dissatisfaction in our walk. But Paul says, I lay hold of Christ who has already laid hold of me. He pursues Christ knowing that Christ has already taken hold of, of him. And when we realize that the work has already been done, that Christ has already taken hold of us, then we really begin to realize the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus. So we talked about joy in the pursuit. What we strive after matters. If we strive after the things of this world, we will be left disappointed. But if our pursuit is after Christ and Christ alone, that's the place of joy. There's great joy, as we discussed last week, in keeping first things first, knowing what is important, 
and directing our time, energy, and resources towards those things. I want to take a look again at a verse that we looked at last week. And in a world of chaos and confusion and anxiety, I am convinced that it is God's desire for His church to be a non-anxious presence in a world of confusion. Listen to what Jesus says again in Matthew 6, 25. I know we've come back to this section of Scripture quite a few times in our study in Philippians, but really hear it this morning. Jesus says, I say to you, do not worry about your life. Man, Jesus, that's a lot easier said than done. Do not worry about your life. What do you mean do not worry about your life? I wake up having to provide for my family to be the protector and the provider, and and I have to uh, take care of my own needs. What do you mean don't worry about my life? What else am I supposed to worry about? Well, he goes on. Do not worry about your life. Don't worry about what you're going to eat or what you're going to drink. Don't worry about your body, what you put on. Is not life more than food and body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Which of you, by worrying, can add one cubit to his stature? So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you Oh, you of little faith. See, worry here is tied to a lack of faith. And what Jesus is communicating to us and to his disciples is worry has no place in the heart of a believer when we know that our Heavenly Father cares for us and he is able. You don't worry about yourself Because God is concerned about you. Therefore, verse 31, do not worry because of this. Because of your Father who cares and is able, do not worry. Again, asking what am I going to eat and what am I going to drink and what am I going to wear today? For after all these things, that's what the world thinks about. Worry is a trait of the world. It's the cares and concerns of this life without a heavenly Father to protect and provide for. Worry is the cares and concerns of the life that we live apart from the reality that there is a God who is powerful and all-knowing and all-loving who calls you His child. That's why... Jesus says here in this context, that's what the world seeks. When you don't have God as your provider, you have to be your own provider. You have to take care of yourself. All of your needs, you have to shoulder that burden. And that's not what God created you for. David, the shepherd, said, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not what? Want. The Lord is my shepherd. So I don't have to want for those things. I don't have to worry about those things because he knows what I need. And here it is, verse 33. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things shall be added to you. Jesus says, pursue these things. God's kingdom, what God's kingdom is all about. Pursue those things and his righteousness, the righteousness that is 
only found in Jesus Christ pursue those things, God is going to take care of the rest. Don't worry about tomorrow. How many of you are worried about tomorrow? Just two of you. Okay, good. We're, we're picking up on this. You guys have something coming up next week, next month, next year. And we worry. We worry about how it's going to transpire. And Jesus says, don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. So again, Jesus is calling his church to be a non-anxious presence in a chaotic world. That is essential to our witness in this world. If we are paralyzed by worry, it gets in the way of bearing the image of Christ. So this is something that Jesus is constantly teaching his followers. Let me be your provider. Trust me. Seek me first, and everything else will be added to that. And as we've learned in so many of Paul's letters, where does the victory begin? It begins in our minds. That's where the battle starts. Where do you guys worry at? You worry up here. We've talked about this before. I do my best worrying when I lay down to go to sleep at night. I'm great at it. I can be up having arguments in my head for hours, just in turmoil. And as Jesus says, what does that accomplish? Absolutely nothing, except for a lack of sleep and being exhausted in the morning. So, Lord, teach us not to worry. So, this is where the battle begins. Paul starts out here, Philippians chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, my beloved and longed-for brethren, my joy and crown Stand fast in the Lord, beloved. Paul says, dearly loved and longed for. This is the heart of a pastor here. Not even just the heart of a pastor. This is the heart of a Christian leader. You see Paul taking on the persona of Christ. He shares the mind of Christ. He shares the heart of Christ. He says, I long to be with you. I love you. See, there's a difference between godless worrying, where we're thinking about our circumstances, but we're removing God from the equation, and healthy care and concern for others. Understand, those are two very different things. We can be concerned about our kids, or we can worry about our kids. Two different things. Worrying about our kids is not bringing God into the equation and thinking about all of the things that could befall them without understanding that God is good and all-powerful. Concern is, God, I want the best for them. Lord, do whatever it takes to reveal yourself to them. Concern is caring with the context of an all-powerful, all-knowing, all-loving God. Two very different things. Paul is concerned about the churches that he's fathered. And he says, I love you, and I long to be with you. You are my joy and my crown. What does he mean by that? My joy. Paul echoes this in 1 Thessalonians 2, 19, when he writes to the church, he says, for what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? For you are our glory and joy. 
In 1 Thessalonians 3, 9, Paul writes, For what thanks can we render to God for you? For all the joy with which we rejoice for your sake before our God, night and day, praying exceedingly that we may see your face and perfect what is lacking in your faith. Paul says, your spiritual growth is my joy. That promise that one day you will stand right before God in His presence, that's the day I look forward to. Your well-being is my pleasure. Man, that is the heart of a good pastor. That is the heart of a good father and mother. That is the heart of a good Christian leader. My joy is your prosperity. You doing well in the Lord brings me happiness. That's what Paul is saying. You're my joy. You're the handiwork of God. And as I work and labor and toil for your well-being, as your faith grows, my faith grows. You're my joy. He also says, you're my crown. What does that mean? Well, it could be, mean one of two things. It could mean... You're my honor. You honor me. Or the word crown that Paul uses is also used uh, to describe a wreath that was awarded to a victor of a competition, like the, the Greek and Roman games. They would give them a crown made out of olive leaves and branches. And so Paul might be saying, you're, you're my reward. It's the same thing that we see in Proverbs 12, 4, where we see an excellent wife is the crown of her husband. Or some of you grandparents, you can give a hearty amen to this. Proverbs 17, 6, grandchildren are the crown of old men. There's nothing like the love of a grandparent for their grandkids. The pride and the joy and the treasure they have in their grandkids. Some of you are thinking, you don't know my grandkids. I don't. But when you're so deeply invested in the lives of others, again, their well-being becomes your well-being. When you are so deeply involved in the well-being of others, their success becomes your success. And that's what Paul has been talking about all through the book of Philippians. Have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who thought it not anything to be equal to God, but humbled himself and became a servant and obedient to the point of death. It's lowering ourselves for the good of others. That's been the the beating heart of Philippians. So again, Paul, even in that first verse, is again revealing to us that Christ is doing a work in him. And Christ has produced an affection and a love and a joy in the success and flourishing of the churches that he has been so intimately involved in. Now look at Philippians chapter 4, verse 2. I implore Odia, and I employ Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. And I urge you also, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. It seems that Paul takes a a sharp turn here. And we see that there is a disagreement between two women within the church. And it's no small disagreement. Imagine for a second, someone, this is how Paul's letters would work. You would take Paul's letter, and you'd go before the church, and you would read it out loud to the entire church. So imagine that someone is up in front of the the church family, and they're reading this letter, and then Paul calls you out by name. Paul says in this publicly read letter, I beg Odia and I beg Syntyche. Be be like-minded. 
be of the same mind. So this was no small issue. This disagreement was not, not only causing uh, dysfunction between Odia and Syntyche, it was harming the unity of the fellowship, enough so that Paul had to call it out in front of the church publicly. But what is he begging for? Be of one mind. Now, what do we know about these women? They are fellow workers for the gospel. But you're telling me that two individuals who are doing the work of the gospel can have a disagreement that's so intense it's bringing harm to the church? Yes, absolutely. But I thought if, if, if both of them are born-again believers and they're being obedient to the Lord, we should have all, all kinds of peace and love and kumbaya and everything should just work out well, right? Not always, because we're human. And pride lives in every single one of us. So Paul says, help these women, help these women to be of the same mind, to return to the first things. Help them to share the mind of Christ. And then he kind of gives us an idea of how maybe we, if we're in the middle of a disagreement that is affecting those around us, which they always do, it's never just us and somebody else, but these kinds of, and you know what? Paul never mentions what kind of disagreement it is. Could have been about doctrine. It could be about methodology. One thought it was more effective to, to be a witness in this way, and the other one disagreed. It could be personal disagreement. It could be personality conflict. We don't know, and I think that's a good thing because we experience all kinds of disagreements with others. But Paul walks them through how they are to facilitate reconciliation. He says, first of all, their names are both written in the book of life. I think we forget that sometimes, that one day we are going to spend eternity with one another. Let's figure out how to make it work now before we step into eternity. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. We're all going to the same place. And it will be beautiful when we step into the, the light of eternity. But with that in mind, let's act like it. That we are part of the same family. And then Paul, again, returns to the theme of Philippians. He says, rejoice. Again, enjoy the Lord. Return to the, Lord, the joy that you have in the Lord. And again, I say, rejoice. And what does he say? Always. Rejoice always. There's words that I do not like my kids using. You always do this, Dad. Always? You never let us... Never? Really? But here goes Paul. Rejoice in the Lord always. Is he just using hyperbole? I think Paul knows something. That what God has done, what God has accomplished for us through Christ, his character, his nature, his love for us, we can always rejoice in it because it never changes. It's not circumstantial. So he would not say rejoice always unless we were able to rejoice always. Paul says, remind these women, women to return to the joy that they have in the Lord because relation, relational turmoil you guys know as well as I do, that takes our focus off of Christ and onto our circumstances. Again, how many of you have laid up at night thinking about some turmoil that's going on in a relationship and just hurting over that? And Paul says, bring them back to what God has done for them and what God is doing in the world now. We don't have time for this. We don't have time for this relational turmoil. It weighs heavy on the minds of all of those who invo are involved, especially within the community of Christ. So Paul says, rejoice again 
and I say, rejoice. The commentator Ralph Martin writes, to a company of Christ's people who were in doubt and fear and set in the midst of a hostile world, this assurance rings out like a clarion call and is repeated so that its message may not be misunderstood. Let me remind you that Paul is not writing this letter from his high castle. He's not writing this letter from his mansion. He's not writing this letter from some elevated position that he has in the church. He is writing this letter from prison. And yet he says, rejoice in the Lord always. He, as Ralph Martin points out, is supremely qualified to issue this call. Church, return to the joy that we have in the Lord. In Philippians 1.29, this is from the CSB, for it has been granted to you, Paul writes, on Christ's behalf, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. It's a privilege, Paul says, since you are engaged in the same struggle that you saw I had and hear that I have. What Paul is acknowledging is the Philippian church, the church in Philippi, is being persecuted. And here's one thing that I'm learning. The more chaotic and confusing our world gets, the more pressure we feel as Christians as we try to live out our faith in this world, the more we have a tendency to tilt towards worry and anxiety and just uncertainty the more there's a chance of that slipping into the church. And we begin to point our confusion and worry and anxiety at others. And we take out our anxiousness on others. See, Paul isn't simply calling the church to be happy. He's saying you need to remember and believe what God has done and what He's calling you to. See, this is a call to faith. And then Paul talks about the witness of gentleness and graciousness. I.H. Marshall writes, the attitude of a man who is charitable towards men's faults and merciful in his judgment of their failings because he takes their whole situation into account, that's gentleness, that's graciousness. And this hostility that we see in the world, we need to make sure that we don't let it slip into our relationships. This anger and this bitterness and this rivalry that we constantly see in the, this, this world, the, this taking up a, of tribal warfare, if you will. You don't believe what I believe, then you're an enemy. That kind of thinking... It can creep in, and it's creeped into the church in Philippi between these two women. And Paul says, guys, have we forgotten to be gracious with one another, to be charitable towards one another's faults, to be merciful in our judgment of others, taking their whole situation into account? And finally, Paul says, remember, and this is key, I think, when it comes to conflict, Remember, the Lord is at hand. You know what that tells me? We don't have time. We don't have time to be caught up in bitter arguments and disagreements. The Lord is near. I think Paul's saying two things when he says the Lord is at hand. One, the Lord is near, that he's able to help. If we lack forgiveness, we can beg the Lord to grant us that. And... He's coming back soon. Both are true. Anticipation and understanding. We don't have time to waste on fighting with one another. Let's look at verse 6. 
And here Paul just echoes the heart of Christ again. But he uses one of those words that I hate. Be anxious for nothing. We never get ice cream on a Friday. No. Be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Guys, hear this. Christian obedience is about a better way. Understand what I mean by that. This world thinks that following Jesus is all about not doing fun things. It's all about saying no to things that we deeply want. It's a life of, and and to an extent it is, it's self-control. But it's not self-control just for the sake of self-control. You have monks who hike up hills flogging themselves because they think that's spiritual, that's denying the flesh. But the Christian walk is saying no to this because we know something better is down the road. It's saying no to this earthly thing because we know something spiritual and significant is on the other side. So Paul says, be anxious for nothing, but he doesn't leave us there. He's not saying, hey, don't worry about anything. Period. No, he says replace that worry with something far better. Because there's a God who loves you and he's able. So take that worry and instead replace it with prayer and supplication. And thanksgiving. That's key. So many people reduce Christian obedience to sin avoidance what we should not and cannot do. But really, Christian obedience is about a better way, a higher way. Luke 10, 38, if you'd open there with me. I love this passage. Luke 10, 38. Now it happened as they went that he entered a certain village and a certain woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister named Mary who also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. But Martha was distracted with much serving and she approached him and said, Lord, do you not care? There it is. That's worry. That is the heart of worry. That is one of Satan's favorite lies. God doesn't care. Or he's not all-powerful. Because if he was all-powerful and he cared, he would change your circumstance. But here is Martha, troubled with a great many things, working hard in the kitchen. And here's lazy Mary, sitting at the feet of Jesus, just listening to Jesus speak. And Martha's frustrated. Does she have any idea how many people are coming over today? Does she have any idea what needs to be done for us to get ready for this group? and it's brewing up inside of her. And she goes to Jesus, the creator of the universe, and says, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? I'm doing this all by myself. Tell her to help me. And Jesus answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you are what? You're worried, and you're troubled about many things. One thing is needed, and Mary has chosen the good part, which will not be taken away from her. 
who had a better understanding of reality in that moment? Who had a better understanding of the most important things, the pressing things, the things that were deserving of attention? Mary. Mary understood that she was sharing a home. I don't think she had full understanding of Christ's identity, but she knew enough that I'm going to put myself at his feet and I'm going to hang on every word. And Martha, she was wrapped up in the day-to-day. Now, did those things need to be done? Yeah. But this was a heart issue. And it's not that Martha was doing it with joy, preparing her home for people to come in and spend time with Jesus. See, it's an issue of the heart, not about the responsibility. We don't just wake up in the morning and, and, hey, I know I got responsibilities, but it's just me and Jesus today. I'm not going to take care of the kids. I'm not going to get ready. I'm just going to, it's just me and Jesus. That's not the point. The point is, where is our mind oriented, or what is our mind oriented on? See, the antidote for worrying isn't to just stop worrying. Our mind has to be set on better things. Willful, purposeful reorienting of our thought life. Paul says, don't worry about anything, but in everything. See, I want to be careful how I say this. We know that blasphemy, right, is the unforgivable sin. And that's one question that, that I think Pastor John can relate to this. I get asked that a lot. What is this unforgivable sin? Because I'm so afraid of committing it. What is the unforgivable sin? It's blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And what is the Holy Spirit constantly doing in this world? Calling people to a right relationship with Jesus Christ. And if you reject that, and you reject that, and you reject that, and you blaspheme, you, you blaspheme the good work of the Holy Spirit, and you die separated from Christ, there's no forgiveness. So when we say, no, I don't want anything to do with God's provision for my sin, we are blaspheming the Holy Spirit. It's unforgivable. Worry is dangerously close to that. Now, I'm not saying just because we worry, God won't forgive us, but it's kind of the same mindset. When we worry, we're saying God is not making provision for my needs. Again, we are reinforcing and affirming Satan's favorite lies. God doesn't love us or God is not in control. And that is just so close to blasphemy. That's why Jesus says, do not worry. You're a child of God. Do not worry. You belong to him. Do not worry. God knows your name and he cares about you. And I have died so that you may be right with him. Do not worry. Paul says, don't be anxious. Instead, take that anxiety and go to your good father with gratitude, thanking him for all that he's done, and then trusting in him to supply for your needs. Let your requests be made known to him. And that will guard your mind. And that will guard your heart. And the peace of God, which Paul says surpasses all understanding. And in modern day English, a peace that makes absolutely no sense will guard your heart. Turn your attention to the Lord. Isaiah 26, 3. You will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you 
because he trusts in you. You will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. That's the battle right there. That's the battle that we are fighting every day, keeping our mind stayed or set on the Lord. Look at verse 8. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of a good report, if there is any virtue, if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. What is meditate? Meditate's a word that we're not super comfortable with, right? Because of just that new age movement. But the, the new age movement, their version of meditation is setting your mind on what? Nothing. Empty yourself. Look through your mind's eye. I've been to Sedona. I know some of the, <laughs> some of the lingo. This is a different kind of meditation. This is setting our mind on the things above and not the things below. It's an orienting of our thought life around our good, good Father. Whatever is true, that's Him. Whatever is noble, that's Christ. Whatever is just, only Him. Whatever is pure, just Him. Whatever is lovely, whatever brings a good report, Him and His kingdom work. It's all Him. It's the kingdom of heaven and His righteousness. Set your mind on Him. Think about Him. And guys, you know what gives us a little bit of a, uh, some ammunition to think about who He is? Uh, working knowledge of God's Word. Think about Him. Meditate on these things. The things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you. The peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guide your minds, and the God of this peace will be with you. That's what the church desperately needs today. We just need rest. We need our minds to be stilled. We need that quiet confidence, and it's not going to come from wrapping our minds around what might be, or what could be, or what should be. That peace comes from, Lord, how am I to live this life in this fallen world and be a witness for you? We consume so much in actionable information on a daily basis. Do you know what I mean by that? Information that we can do nothing about. And the only thing it does is stir us up and worry us. I think we need to return to that question, God, what can I do today? How am I to live today in the midst of this fallen world? How can I be a witness for you in the sphere of influence that you've granted me. We often lack joy because we lack peace of mind. And we're losing that battle that wages in our minds. And in this age of information overload, we have millions of voices telling us how to think and how to act and what to buy and what to believe. And we have to learn to turn it off and meditate on Him and His good word. Again, we can be so wrapped up in, in what's going to happen tomorrow that we've forgotten how we're to live today. We become so concerned about what is living in the shadows of darkness, in the shadows of this fallen world. Can you believe this is going on? Can you believe that is going on? Look at what this company is doing. And don't get me wrong, it, it's not wrong to be informed, but if that's just our steady diet of information, and I've said this before, it's like walking around a pig farm and complaining about how it stinks. 
Yes, pig farms stink. There is evil in a fallen world, and that's why we're here. Jesus says, I don't pray that you take them out of the world, but I pray that you protect them from the evil one. You are the light of the world. So yes, there are wicked things going on in the darkness. How are we to be a light? There are broken things happening in the shadows. But we are called to be the light. When our minds are so tied up in so many other areas, it's so easy to lose track of what is important. And the further we get away from the important things, we forget what we are even missing. And so Paul's letter here is a call for the church to return again mentally first and then tangibly to first things. Paul says in Romans 8, 5, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit, for to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Meditate on these things. Look at verse 10. Paul says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last your care for me has flourished again, though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. The title of this morning's teaching was The Joy of a Spiritual Mind. If we had a a secondary title, it would be the joy of being content. The joy of realizing we have everything that we need. And everything above that is just a bonus. Paul says, I have learned, and again, he's writing this from prison. I have learned that whatever state I am, I'm all good. I'm content. I know how to be abased, meaning suffer lack, and I know how to abound. Everywhere in all things, I have learned, Paul says. I I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Nevertheless, You have done well that you shared in my distress. Now you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving, but you only. For even in Thessalonica, you sent aid once and again for my necessities. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. Indeed, I have all and abound. I am full, having received from Epaphroditus the things sent from you, a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God, and my God shall supply all your need according to the riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul says, this is what I've learned. Over the many years of walking with Jesus and Him being my singular aim, fighting to keep my mind set on the things that are important, on Christ and Christ alone, this is what I've learned, that whatever condition I find myself in, I have all that I need in Him. Whether physically I'm suffering need or whether I'm abounding, it doesn't matter what my physical circumstances are, are, I have all that I need in Christ. And I have to repeat, this is something that Paul learned. It wasn't something that was given to him on the road to Emmaus. Or the road to Damascus. There we go. That was a test. 
You guys are listening. He says, whatever condition I find myself in, God is my provider. Whether I have a little or a lot, whether I'm well-fed or hungry, I have learned the secret to being content. My ultimate source of strength is Jesus. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's not simply a verse that football players put inside their helmets because they're about to take someone's head off. It's more than an inspirational sporting quote. It means we can suffer great loss, but still have all that we need because no one can take away Christ from us. And when He's the source of our joy, not earthly things, our joy is untouchable. But again, if we're enamored by worldly things and earthly things, those things can be lost, they can be stolen, and they break down and are destroyed. But nothing can touch our relationship with Jesus. I'll close with this. There's a phrase that you might have heard, the heart wants what? The heart wants, right? The heart wants what the heart wants. That gives us the idea that our desires, we have no control over them. Whatever we want, it's just what our heart wants. Scripture teaches something very different. The heart wants what we have trained it to want. The heart wants what we have given it an appetite for. And Paul says, my appetite is for the things of God. And I have learned that only that, and that is where I am fulfilled. What desires are you shaping this morning? Are you shaping a desire for the things of God? Or through the things that you consume and I consume, are we shaping our desire for worldly things that just let us down? The joy of the Lord is my strength, and I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me.